Hello, welcome to Off Track On Purpose, the podcast where we come together to reimagine academic and faculty life. I'm your co-host, Britt Yamamoto, and along with Maya Fisher, I want to thank you for joining us. We're here to have heart-centered conversations with people who have experienced and successfully endured advanced academic training and gone on to have meaningful social impact through their creative pursuits and practical actions. For this reason, we could not be more excited to have today's guest. Dr. Ramatu Bangura has spent the last 25 years working with and on behalf of adolescent girls in New York City, Washington, D.C., and as a Peace Corps volunteer in Costa Rica. And she is committed to decolonizing philanthropic practices to ensure that those most impacted by structural violence and oppression are afforded the tools to create a world where we are all safe, seen, and celebrated. She currently leads the design and inception of the Children's Rights Innovation Fund. Prior to working there, Ramatu served as a program officer for the the Nova Foundation's Advancing Adolescent Girls' Rights Initiative, where she co-led strategy development and grant making to advance philanthropy's largest portfolio, working to advance the rights, leadership, and well-being of adolescent girls in the United States and in the global south. Ramatu earned both a Master's of Education and Doctorate of Education in International and Transcultural Studies at Teachers College, Columbia University. Her dissertation, In Pursuit of Success, The Educational Identities and Decision-Making of African Girls with Limited Formal schooling, utilized African feminism to examine how immigrant girls with limited formal schooling navigate American schools and make decisions about college and marriage. I have had the pleasure of knowing Ramatu for a few years now, but have never had an opportunity to explore issues like we do in this conversation. Please enjoy today's episode. I can guarantee you that there will be more than one thing that leads you to learn and grow. Welcome to Preflections as we anticipate our conversation. Maya, are there some things that you're particularly interested in? Yes. So her background is fascinating. She's done a lot of work in the nonprofit and philanthropic sector. So it's interesting to me how somebody would use advanced training in these fields, because I don't think that's a place where people with advanced degrees aren't as visible as they are perhaps in other fields. And her work with women and girls in such diverse and varied ways, I'm interested in how did she get there? Her bio starts with the idea of she wants to change the world into a place for her daughter to be able to live. And so I think about that in my work as well, wanting to live in a world where people are respected and have dignity as human beings. I know how I got to that place, so I'm just very interested to hear how she got to that place. It's amazing, the life that she's led, and to see it through the lens of purpose and being on purpose, as is the title of our podcast. It's just so inspiring to see someone who has clearly assembled a path of purpose and clarified through a commitment to being a part of creating this world for her daughter, but then also more broadly to create a world that everyone can thrive in. And hopefully our conversation will really engage that depth of purpose as opposed to to simply just the various activities. Because if you look at how global her various activities have been, and then being the child of immigrants, I would love to hear more about how that shaped and influenced her thinking. I'm curious too, just about how her academic training is located on this arc of purpose, being driven by purpose. Yeah, and the purpose to me seems very clear. Women and girls have been at the center of it. In her blog, it's very clear that there are times where she makes choices or pivots 
and positions that at the center of whatever it is that she's doing, whether it's the organization that she joins, you know, how as a professional, you can keep that purpose centered and also not burn out because a lot of us, we have passions and things that we want to do and we might do something for a few years and then take a break (laughs) because we get burned out or there's just too much work. And to see somebody remain so committed to women and girls and the complexity of issues around equality and Mm. gender parity, whether it's economic or safety or education, because a lot of the work that people who are passionate or purpose-driven or mission-driven do is hard work and not always rewarded in Mm. ways that, whether it be financial or accolades or what have you, it's rewarding when you see the people whose lives you're impacting personally Mm. and emotionally, but can that sustain somebody's career? And how does she stay motivated? How does she stay committed? Mm. What keeps her going is a question I'm always interested in people, in asking people who have these passions and things that drive them. It's always interesting to hear the different ways that people arrive in similar places. Yeah, I'm really curious too about the role that her degree and the pursuit of her degree has played in her work because part of me wonders how necessary an advanced degree is or was in helping to move that along. And so I'm sure that it was and it's played an important role but I look forward to hearing her talk about it, how it shaped things. The last thing too, is that oftentimes we talk about people as professionals or just slivers of who they are. And it's very clear and evident from her writing and the things that she's thinking about that her family and her role as a mother or as a parent is really important and also central. And so I think for people in academic spaces or people who have pursued degrees, oftentimes they don't feel like they are whole human beings or they're told that they have to sacrifice things like their family or time with their kids to meet potential tenure obligations and things like that. And so I'd be interested in her stories about navigating working back into school and then out and just how that impacted her life as a human being outside of those things. Lots to look forward to. Let's dive in. We're really excited about this conversation. I've been looking forward to this for a while now. Welcome Dr. Ramatu Bangura to Off Track on Purpose. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing well. Great. We always like to open our pod exploring people's academic origin story and what brought you to grad school, where it might fit with with where you find yourself right now. Sure. What took me to grad school? I have to probably start with, I applied to graduate school when I was in the Peace Corps in Costa Rica towards the Caribbean coast. And I applied because I thought I wanted to be involved in education and knew that I did not want to be a teacher, but education felt like a good place to be for the type of work I thought I wanted to do, which I think was work that was working with young people, doing informal training, workshops, what what I would later learn is youth work, youth facilitation 
construction work. And, and I wanted an excuse to live in New York. And I was wanting an excuse to just be in a learning space. I, I, I missed being a student. I wanted to just be in a learning space and applied to one program from Costa Rica as a Peace Corps volunteer, making no money and decided to apply. And so much so that when I saw the test score requirements, they said recommended test scores. And so I, I took them at their word and assumed it was recommended, but not mandatory. And so I didn't submit a GRE or anything. I just filled out the application, wrote my essay. I think I applied for a waiver and sent it in and I got in and found out as I was applying to the doctoral program a few years later that they didn't have any GRE scores and were really confused by that and how I got in. And I said, well, you said it was recommended. So I took you at your word. Point number one of top recommended <laughs> tips for potential grad students, take applications at their word. Yeah, they said it was recommended. So I didn't feel like I needed it. So I didn't take it. And so I applied and then got in and then returned from Peace Corps and realized that I needed to work. I didn't have an apartment. I had missed my family. And then I got a job at the DC Rape Crisis Center, which was really interesting to me as a director of community education. This is the work I want to do. So I'll do that for a little while. I did that for about a year and a half and deferred my admission. And then I went to, off to Teachers College at Columbia. And for me, it was just a question of, I just wanted to be in a learning space. I wanted an excuse to be in New York City and have another excuse in my mind at the time than school. And school felt a valid reason to leave my parents home. And so that's what I did. So that's how I ended up in graduate school at a very expensive graduate school once I realized that's where I selected. I just, as I was wont to do at the time, just flitted about and did what I was interested in. And so you started in their master's program and then decided to continue for a doctor. What was the motivation to, to stay? Once I was there, and then I remember going to the orientation and seeing how much it cost, and then I had to go home and lay down. <laughs> days. I was like, what the hell? So I went home and I laid down and then I just started the program and I really enjoyed it because it was a combination of international relations. And I went specifically to that program at Columbia because there was a professor there, Fran Vavris, who was doing work around gender and development and gender and, and international education that I found really interesting. So I just wanted to go there. And while I was there, I was working full time. I never imagined myself just immersing myself in graduate school. That seemed like not enough things to do. So I was working pretty much full-time at a community-based organization in Harlem with girls that were coming in and out of the sex trade, an organization called GEMS in Harlem, and was working there and attending classes and really enjoyed it. I felt locked out of, I didn't realize at the time that it was because I was not really fully participating and immersed in the graduate experience that I had this, I was living in Brooklyn, so I wasn't even living near campus, and I was working in Harlem, and I wasn't, I felt very locked out of opportunities. I, I couldn't seem to get a hold of an internship. I couldn't find a professor that would take interest in me enough to pass me opportunities. I had professors that loved my work and loved my writing, but it never seemed to translate into any kind of opportunity. And I think in part, because of probably more systemic reasons, but a lot of the reasons I wasn't, for a lot of reasons, I just wasn't there. I wasn't that interested in graduate school life. I wasn't that interested in hanging out at cheese and wine, like cheese folks who gathered around around wherever the free food was and wherever folks would have wine for students. So that wasn't my thing. I went there for classes and I went home or went to work. And so I hadn't thought about a doctorate at all. Wasn't remotely interested. And then I was coming to the end of my studies. And at that time I had switched to working for an organization in the South Bronx that was working with African girls, immigrant girls from mostly West Africa. And I had designed a program to work with them and was looking at really what was the, the educational experiences being students with significantly interrupted formal education. And the particular challenge 
challenge of being an English language learner when you may not be literate in the first language that you learn to speak, which a lot of the way that we teach language assumes a certain degree of literacy. And so that was a particular conundrum. And at the same time, I was also working with these girls who were really facing a lot of different pressures around marriage and expectations around marriage, expectations around young womanhood in the U.S. versus where they were coming from. And I just wasn't seeing them showing up in the literature that I was reading. And I had never worked with people that I saw in the literature in, in any full way. Like I, I was before that, when I was working with kids that were street involved, they were nowhere to be found in the particularly girls, nowhere to be found in any kind of literature. And I just was about to leave grad school and feeling like I wanted to write about them. Like I wanted to be with them and I wanted to write about them and I wanted their story to be told because it was like, it was consuming my life in so many ways. It was all I was doing and all I was thinking about. And a friend of mine was like, well, you should apply. And I was like, oh no. And she said, just apply. You'll figure it out. And Dr. Alicia Taylor was another black woman. And she was, I think, adjuncting at that time. And she encouraged me to apply. And so I applied and then I was like, oh, now I'm in. And I probably had another lay down moment. When I <laughs> How much it was going to cost. But I, some, for some reason, somebody might argue not too bright, went ahead and did it anyway. And I, I just, I love the studying and the researching. I love the like finding a place to insert these girls in the canon. And that felt really important to me. And so that's why I did a doctorate was because I, I didn't know what other way to have a platform and a space to really think about and write about this group, this community of young women that I was getting introduced to. So much of your story resonates and I feel also speaks to my own story. I went to NYU as a grad student, but then also loved the studying, but wasn't as immersed in the department or the culture because I was nannying to pay for school. Just the similarity of that. I'm like, oh my gosh, that sounds like me too. Because a lot of times you do feel like you're struggling or your story is only one because you see so many around you with a different one from you but similar to each other so it's just really cool to hear that <laughs> it's cool to have it affirmed because at the time I, I felt out of place at mm. teacher college I felt like I was working with kids that were street involved and that felt more like home to me than Columbia and so the code switching that need would need I oftentimes failed at that so I'd be in the space where you know the conversations were a little more aggressive a little more lively a little louder a little more colorful language and then I'd have to transition to a conversation <laughs> in a classroom <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't always go well. Like it's always, sometimes I hadn't fully switched by the time I got to the class and I would say something or some word would come out of my mouth that was not quite what, well, and then someone would disagree and I'd be a little more aggressive than you would in civilized society, like <laughs> in like company. So it was hard and I just, I didn't find myself. And then I would find myself, I would take it very personally. Teachers College is such an interesting place because it there's like, I was in the department that wasn't necessarily doing like classroom regular work. You weren't interacting with the classroom regularly. And I would find so disturbing some of the ways folks would talk about my communities or the folks that I felt like were my communities and that what they would bring to the table as problems and challenges. And I would often feel like I would get very, I would take it very personally and very highly annoyed all the time. So I was like, these are my people. And I eventually did find my people towards the end of my doctorate work, but it took me a while. And I made friends, of course, and had folks that I felt connected to and built friendships with. But in terms of the classroom and the content, I just couldn't find my people. And I was much more comfortable just being outside of that space. And it was hard to talk about these big social ills and problems and abstraction. I still have that problem now. Abstraction, I find really difficult. And there's a degree of abstraction that goes along with study. That's part of the work. That's what the, some of the analysis is. And even when I was doing my doctoral work, it felt that was the hardest piece. That question and then the question of about 
the significance would piss me off. Like, why do I have to explain to you why these people are significant to your larger body of work, which is, has nothing to do with them? And that's part of the reason why I'm writing is that your work has nothing to do with them. So you won't speak back to a canon that doesn't see these people as valuable and then convince the canon why these people are valuable to hear from. And that would just piss me off. And so it was a constant feeling like having to justify the existence of the folks that I was talking about in the literature, which again, I found infuriating. And how dare you? And keep asking me that same question over and over again. But it was the thing I had the most trouble writing about. I had the most trouble talking about because I found it insulting. How did you overcome that? You finished your degree. Clearly you were able to to do something. Pragmatism. And I was pregnant and I was like, I'm not going to keep arguing with these people. Let me tell them what they want to hear so I can get on out of here. So I was, yeah, I was pregnant and writing my proposal. And I was like, I can't be here with them all day fighting with them about what's significant or not about my people. I'm going to write about it. I had a supportive committee. Like I had a committee that saw it and helped me through it and helped me find the right language to make the case for the work. And then I also like, I had a, an amazing writing group of women of color who were also trying to get through because I think what we were finding was that if we were not careful, our work was ignored to death. Of course, I think we, we all experienced hostility towards our ideas and what we were looking to put forward. But I think more than anything, I felt like it was more ignored to death. If you weren't careful, one would engage your work seriously. Once if you were, your work was about race or gender or God forbid, the combination of the two, it was like, oh, that's nice. And no one would engage you. You wouldn't get pushed on. You wouldn't get challenged or questioned in any way. And then your work would suffer for it. And so the group of us just got together. I think it was like, after I left, there were more folks came, but when I came on it was like four or five of us and we would just gather and interrogate each other's work and rip it apart <laughs> and help us put it back together so that our work would be pushed and challenged in a way because I often felt like very unanchored like I just didn't feel like there was a place that cared even the department that I was in didn't care about really the people I cared about or they just wasn't weren't spaces that were that was a conversation people were doing these meta studies on kind of development spaces and I was doing this very intimate narrative with girls that I was in active community with, it just didn't feel like a place for. So I just found other spaces and I was fortunate enough to have a committee and an advisor and a chair that was like, got it. And I know that not everyone has that as a benefit, but I did. And so that got me through, but I witnessed other folks suffer for the lack of that. And I'm, it's, I think by nature, I see community. I, I'm gonna find it somewhere where I go, I'll find other people to be in close relationship with. And so that's what kind of got me through that experience because I, I definitely didn't find that institutionally. It's so fascinating to hear you share some of these things because we know each other through your work in philanthropy. And if I squint enough, just about everything you're saying could apply to philanthropy. Yeah. <laughs> and the degree you were prepared to work in the philanthropic sector through some of the things like being ignored to death um, mm. and the work right and the content and the study but then all of the the organizations and the grassroots work that's being done around the world that is overlooked and I know that has been one of your priorities in philanthropy is to lift those people up and so it's just interesting to think about those as being connected have you thought about how what you learned through graduate school both intentionally and unintentionally may relate to what you currently do in philanthropy yes I feel like it's all the same work philanthropy was like a splash of cold water for me. It was both like invigorating. I was like, 
being having access to that kind of resource. And I think the particular way that I came into philanthropy and the organization that I came into philanthropy, and then the who my supervisors were, who the leadership was in the organizations, allowed me a very particular. I think there's every movement to philanthropy is a particular move because every someone told me very early on, like when you work for one foundation, you you worked for just one foundation. <laughs> They're all so different. So in the particular space I moved in, which was the Novo Foundation, it was the invigorating part of that splash of cold water was that there was money to move and I could move it. And it took me a while to realize that was a thing. And I was like, oh, okay, that's what this is. And I think coming from the background that I came from, I felt like once I figured out that that was a possibility, I knew where to move it because I knew where the work was and what it looked like to do it. And so I, I, that felt like a really good match to me. And that was invigorating. I think the part that was like the shock was prior to that, the program that had been running for eight years in the South Bronx, I think I ran that program at best on a good year on $150,000 a year. And we served nearly a hundred girls and that 150000 included my salary. And so to go from that's the scale that I'm working on. And then to go from that into philanthropy where we talk about $100,000 as if it's nothing. A million dollars, you're talking $500,000. And I'm like, people have these kind of budgets? Like who and when? <laughs> and, and what do they do with all this money? Because Lord knows we had not a dime. And so it was like, I, I just found myself blinking a lot. Like working from abundance, I, I just, I hadn't experienced that. And I didn't know. I know, I felt like I know what to do with it. I was like, oh, you gonna give me the, okay. Then let me, because in my mind, the immediate thought is eventually, they're going to not want to give me the money no more. So let me do the most I can with it, which is what happened. But this thing can't last forever. Let me just go ahead and ride it till the wheels fall off. And so I think what it brought is I led with having done the work that I was trying to resource, which felt really important. And I felt like if I got in, I'm going to bring in all these people. There was there were relationships that I built along the way that I really relied heavily on. On Does this feel right? I'm trying to figure out how to resource this group of people. How do I get to them? Like I relied on those relationships that I came in with. And then just my instincts about the unseen parts of the work that no one ever talks about, especially with girls, because that's the work that I was doing was work with resourcing and supporting work with girls at grassroots on the grassroots level globally. And one of the things that I knew was true and what I was true traveled more is that the work looks the same. Young people in crisis, young people that have been deprived of the resources they need, young people that are pushed to the margins. Support for them looks very much the same from place to place. There's not a lot of difference. And the people that choose to either out of folly, foolishness, or just like naivete to stand in that gap are some of the most overworked and under-resourced people on the planet. But they know when you're talking about young people, they know where systems fail and they're trying to stand in the gap where those systems fail or where they're non-existent. And when, whether those systems are families, our schools, our healthcare, our infrastructure. The young, the person that chooses to stand in the gap for young people that are in their charge or in their care, whether that's teachers, youth organizers, other young people, folks that run youth programs, community organizations, it can look like anyone that chooses to stand in that gap. They have a unique insight. I know that it gave me a unique ins insight. It's, it's the thing that's so profoundly imprinted on my spirit is a lot of young people are living very difficult lives. And I don't think we want to fully absorb the level of deprivation that young people are existing under. And I have been repeatedly inspired by the way folks maneuver when they're not meant to make it, when they're throwaways, when they're discarded, when folks don't see them as valuable enough to support. And I've seen folks move through that disregard and build lives for themselves and thrive and support other people. And that is imprinted on me. And I think that's the thing that I try to look for in, the, in my work and figure out 
at Novo and, and in philanthropy is figure out how to get them money. Those, when I say, one of the things I got clear about at Novo, maybe my second or third year, regardless of the institution I'm in, my work is to move money to my people. And I see those folks as my people, as those folks that are choosing to stand in the gap when it makes no sense. Some of the stuff that I did as a youth worker makes no sense. Could have got a whole lot of people's licenses removed. This is going to have got a whole lot of people in trouble, <laughs> but I stand by it because the systems are meant for these kids to survive. Yeah. And so anything I do to help contribute to that survival and, and even better if they get to thrive in any way then was worth it, was well worth it. And so I've always, I look for in my philanthropic work, I want those people to feel seen and I want them to feel supported and I want them to feel resourced and honored for their wisdom and honored for all that they do. They deserve at least that, even if they not, may not ever get the money. They deserve to have their expertise recognized because they have that. So that's been the huge motivator for me in my work in philanthropy. I see myself as like a mole. I'm in here trying to translate what that work looks like. I'm in here trying to hopefully conspire with folks to move it. I've, survival takes a lot of, it takes a lot of conspiring and working a system and hustling. And I, and I value and honor that spirit. It's interesting, again, to think about what you just shared through the lens of academic inquiry. So someone's going to put it into a research question. Someone's going to ask you how it's connected to what other people have done. Someone's going to ask you mm -hmm. to situate it in the literature. Someone's going to ask you to make sure that it is unique work on and on. And mm -hmm. so some of those behaviors to connect it to something legitimate and legitimate, I use in, in quotes, mm -hmm. that can be understood. Yeah, uh, I'm not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. It's not, I think some of what I've taken from academia, it offers a rigor to my work mm. and my analysis that informs my work that I love. I think it's not, it's not a common thing. And so I treasure that it's important to me, but some of these hoops that we got people jumping through to say that they know something, I would love to run a filter through it. What's, what is this? Is this, either, is this about maintaining the hierarchy of academia or is this about us knowing what we know? Because philanthropy will do this every time we got to do something, we got to do a whole nother report that says the same thing as the last report. And that says the same thing, has the same recommendations of the report before that. But before we start anything, we got to do a report. And so what I was fortunate enough in my last role and what I try to take forward in this role is, can we skip over that step of having to affirm to the world we know what we already know? And I think with being a Black woman in this space where folks, I, I got the the second and third layer of questioning whenever I say anything anyway, or whenever I assert anything anyway, having the resources, being at the helm of some pot of resources relieved me of that for a little bit, which mm -hmm. was exhilarating mm -hmm. to be able to say, no, we know this. I don't have to do another study. Do we know that during a pandemic, girls are going to bear the brunt of the domestic work? Yes, we know this. Do we have to do another study or can we just act from that knowledge and maybe save some of those resources for the people that are actually supporting that girl Yep. rather than spend a couple hundred thousand dollars on a study to tell us what we already know, mm. because we know how patriarchy works. We know mm. how racism works. Mm. We know how adultism works. So we know we can safely say this. So can we act now? And I think there's a way that this, the rigor, the kind of all of the hoops we jump through and the rigor of academia is an excuse to stall and not act on what we know. And so that's where it's not helpful. We know these problems are big and they're going to take time or generations to repair or address. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants to face that reality or mm -hmm. it's okay, we can do it for five years, but then in five years, the tides shift. Oh, this is the new thing. Actually, yeah. I was just having a conversation with somebody yesterday about higher education access initiatives. And one of the funders was like, okay, now we want to shift to this. And the person on the ground was saying, 
okay, but we still have this problem to deal with. So just because you shift, because that's what you want to focus on now, doesn't mean that this problem that we've been addressing for the last 20 years is no longer a problem. Yeah, it's, I think it's because philanthropy is everybody wants to plant a flag. It's, a, it's the imperial kind of colonizing nature of philanthropy is that you find an issue, you want to plant your flag on it and just mark it as your territory. And so with that, you want to be able to then show that like, I was right to claim this as my territory and I did this and this is what we achieved. And rather than I think what would be more helpful is that we know that the, the most likely way that transformative social change happens is through organizing and movement or through dictatorship and by fiat. But we know that positive change, even if it doesn't stay positive forever, but any major transformation has happened through people, mass movement and organizing. And so if that is what we know, then we resource that to be ongoing. We don't arrive at a place sometimes the folks that I'm aligned with, if I'm being honest, I don't, I'm scared of what you might look like when you start leading. So mm-hmm. I feel like there's always going to be a need to resource resistance to entrenched power. Because if folks can commit, if this fucked up system we're in saddles you, unfortunately, you poor thing, with all of this wealth, you also know that there will also always need to be movements resource those movements in perpetuity. It's not a question of defining a frame for that movement. And then we're not going to log frame ourselves to freedom and liberation. It's going to be mass movement and mobilizing. That's what it has always been. And so resource that. Your M&E plan is not going to get us free. And even once we get free, it it may not even set up the systems to do it, I think, to keep us free. I think there's a way in which we can, I think Western culture, being of West African immigrants, there's a thing that folks in the West and what I would say like white folks do real is order. You can order the hell out of something. Right down a recipe and, and, you know, institutionalize it and, and, and make, <laughs> make it a thing that somebody else can follow, which is not a bad thing. It's a good yeah. thing, but it doesn't suit all things. Mm. And so I think that's the challenge. I think this moment where in philanthropy, where venture capitalists assume that if they got wealthy, then they can apply those lessons to movements and everything else. That's the best way to order a society. I think that's a, an outstanding question. So movements are going to always have to exist, even in the most idyllic society. It's just human nature. Folks seek power. Other folks seek, seek to topple that power. And the vast majority of the folks that are impacted are going to have to view the way that they get power is by mobilizing and coming together. And so we resource that. That, that should be the conversation we're having. I was reading your relatively new bio and wow, impressive as both a narrative of your arc of life, but also the various things that you've been involved in. I see what you've been doing as someone who's been so clearly on purpose and on commitment. I wonder if you can say a little bit about that because the kinds of things that you've been involved in are what I would consider to be no small things, both Mm -hmm. in what they're trying to accomplish in the world, but also just the intensity of the work. So what's Mm -hmm. led you to be able to maintain that fire or that purpose and to continue to maintain that same commitment to what you're pursuing? I'm profoundly idealistic. I come from idealistic people. I grew up in a community of immigrants from Sierra Leone in the DC area. I have to claim my Nigerian side too because my mom was born in Nigeria, but I, I, I grew up mostly around Sierra Leoneans and folks were undocumented. My parents were undocumented until I was like 11 or 12. So I moved every year pretty much in the same Prince George's County area, but I moved every single year, switched schools until I was like 13, 12, 13. And I didn't realize that was the thing until I was older. I thought my parents just liked to move. And because we stayed in the same area and our community was so tight knit and so loving, I didn't feel like I was missing anything. Like I always had our community. Like we always, we just moved apartments, but our community was our community. And it was a community that was 
like highly organized and took care of itself and took care. It was really good at children now, teenagers, but children, <laughs> we were loved. We were loved. We were abundantly loved and cared for and surrounded all the time by just people. And I like folks that don't have a language for niece and nephew, you're their child. If you they, they still say our children well into my forties and I'm still our children. So in a lot of ways, they taught me community. They taught me both the responsibility and the benefits of, and then when you cross the line, I've also learned the, the, the hard part. And so I think that's in my bones. There's no, that's another thing that's imprinted in my spirit is the importance of community and the importance of taking care of each other and what you gain from that. And so I feel like for me, that's been my purpose. I just, I always want to be with people. Like I want to, I'm very introverted, but really love to gather people and I love to collaborate and be together and figure things out and set up systems like that is what I love to do and I think I've always done girls work and that I think there's something about girlhood I don't know if it's my own unresolved pieces of my girlhood but it's always been central to my work and who I am and wanting to be a safe space for people and that's that I think is another consistent so I've in terms of being on purpose I I I think I always led with that so the credentials Credentials never felt like super important. I was always smart. I think that being smart got, kept me out of a lot of trouble because um, like literally in the communities I grew up in, folks were parents, folks didn't have a lot of money. And, but I grew up in communities that would be considered rough, but I felt like people always looked out for me because I was smart. Like times when I should have got suspended from school, it'd be like one black teacher, pull her side. Now don't call her mom. First, her mom will kill her. Second of all, she's real smart. So they would insulate me a little bit. And so that, in that, like at every step, it was like, she's smart, protect her. Like she's smart, look out for her. That was the constant message. And so I always felt like it was incumbent upon me to have that be in service of something because I felt people poured into me. Like I could lift them. Like people just, and my mom, I know I'm going to use it wrong, but my mom would tell us that one of the things that you don't find in you, in the culture here is a thing called Ajo, which is you know how to take care of people. I think it's a Nigerian word and it's it's a Yoruba word. And it's like the ability to take care of people and then understanding the reciprocity and doing that. And I, I would never tell a story where I got to where I've gotten, wherever that is, on my own fortitude because that would be a lie. That would be the biggest lie. People have poured into me at every level. People that shouldn't have, didn't have to, why would they at every single stage? And it's just been little twists of luck that put me in positions and places. And yeah, it always feels like it's somebody, it's, I have to, I have to live, I have to live up to that investment. So that feels important to me and that feels what's on purpose. And I think the girls work, supporting girls. I just, I love a little girl that's just rebellious. I love a, a little girl who just got too much mouth, don't know how to act. That's, those are my babies. Like I, oh, just a little ornery, doesn't quite do what she's supposed to do. I love the ones that do what they're supposed to do. And I have a little girl. My daughter is very much, she does what she's supposed to do, but I have a special place in my heart for the ones that's cussing a little too loud and act just not just had, they, their spirit hasn't been broken yet. They just kind of out here trying to figure it out like those are my favorite young people particularly girls and so I've always followed them like I work <laughs> so they sometimes they locked up I like that sometimes they not always in school fine but I just there's that and it's just been following those young people and and I didn't know half time didn't know what I was doing I, I used to think sometimes when I didn't know what to say and people would tell me the most horrible things I would just be like I just give them a hug because I didn't know what else to do and I think sometimes you just that's being 
being present and bearing witness, that's like another thing that feels important to me. Like I just, you may not know what to tell somebody or how to help them, but if you can just be present and make and bear witness with them and not make them feel crazy. Because sometimes when you're going through the most difficult time in your life, you feel crazy because you wonder why. And am I seeing what I'm seeing? Am I feeling what I'm feeling? And sometimes you could just be with someone and say, you know, and I'm seeing the two. I think that feels important. So that's been a thread, I think, in my career is just showing up and bear witness to, I think, so I said, I kind of, I'm very idealistic. I think the other pieces, I'm very clear eyed because of the work that I've done at the level of harm human beings can exact on each other. Mm -hmm. And I get very clear about the evil that exists in the world. Very clear on that. I, I felt the, I've seen the worst humanity has to offer to the most vulnerable people that it offers it to just horrendous forms of violence and that are not done in war because it's one thing to say there's violence in war but when there's we're not we're in quote-unquote in peacetime and people are experiencing forms of degradation and violence I think doing work with girls coming in and out of the sex trade the level of violence and degradation that I've seen children withstand like I can I could never be someone who sees the world through rose-colored glasses because I know the level of the capacity of harm that we're able to exact individually, not just systemically, where you have some distance, but like looking someone in their eye and the degree of harm that can be exacted. So I think those two poles keep me where I'm at. And I think that's where the rigor of academia helps because it, it, allows, it, it forces me to hold both that ugliness and hold the beauty at the same time. And then I have to figure out how to reconcile it from time to time. Okay, this person did this and they have a great capacity for doing differently. Sometimes in the same body, sometimes not. So I think those two things, I think for me, propel my work is like, I try to hold space for all things, which I think, again, doing sexual violence advocacy and, and listen to people's Again, her harm that they've experienced, being able to like just hold space is all you, it's really all you're doing. There's no like, technical other skill. You're just holding space for the harm that's already been created and trying to help people move to whatever the next step of that processing looks like. And so that's always been an innate thing that I do, not always well. But I think with time, I gained experience and got a sense, okay, don't do that, do this, don't do that. But to wrap it up, that part of the question, I think trying to hold humanity in all interactions, I think that is part of the other thing that drives me is like human beings and all their exalted ideals and beauty and wonderfulness. And then in all of their wretched fucked up shit. And those all exist at the same time. And then I just try to do my work to like make it easier for somebody to do what they, so maybe someone can point to me and, and their like moment of greatness and say, she helped me a little bit. That makes me feel good. Like, I'm like, okay, she helped me get there or she made a way or she made space or she opened a door or she was a, what do they call them? Liberated gatekeeper. Great. That's a space that I like to be in. So that for me feels on purpose. Mm -hmm. So I just, at this point in my career, I'm like, I'm just gonna do what I want to do to that end. And I feel like there's a need for it. So somebody's gonna pay me to do it if I could just make the case. And that's really well it is. Okay. I just want to be in a position to, to move resources and move love and energy and appreciation and visibility to the people that are the audacity to dream up something better than what we're doing right now. And then if I do, that's good. And you, and if you pay me to do it, that's even better because then I can take care of my family. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I try to do. I think that's what feels like on purpose for me. I like my freedom though. I want to do what I want to do. This is, this is, this, and, the, and, and on some level, the, the doctorate degree, I think helps because when I whip it, I can whip it out and be like, so I'm an expert in something and people will tell me, people let me do things and I'm a firm believer in fake it till you make it. So if that doctor gets me in the door and then I can just do what I do what I want to do, then that's great. That's the one, I think the thing that it opens up for me.
is that people put a lot of energy into it. And so they let me do stuff and pay me to do it sometimes, but just let me do stuff. Thank you for that. Wow. I'm glad this is being recorded because I can re-listen and let it marinate for a while. You touched upon some really important things. Just listening to you share so many things just echo either thinking or struggles or experiences that I've had and the the difficulty in being able to balance wide-eyed idealism or just belief that better is possible and the other end of that being the reality is so much harder. And how do you balance those in a way that allows you to continue to do the work that you want to do or invest in the places and the people where you want to do that? And one of the questions that I had for you too, is that some of your passion being driven by creating a world that is better for your daughter. And thinking about that, what would you consider to be your vision of that? And or what part would you like to be able to leave in the world that makes it better for her? I don't know if I know. I, I get asked this being in philanthropy, but this is some of the conversations we engage in. I find pockets of it in a lot of different places. It's not as if it doesn't exist. I, like I, for example, I think about my daughter has been pretty ill over this pandemic and we created a we part of like a pod of other families in the neighborhood. The reason was the school and our kids, we could bounce the kids between the houses and they could have socialization and we could have time to work. But really, Really, it has been, we have been so cared for by folks that are not, they're not my family. We met because our kids go to the same school. And I find these moments where people could be incredible, like just profoundly good. And like I said, I know that people can be profoundly evil. And I don't know if I've ever reconciled it. I think I just allow for it all to exist. Like it, it's going to be. And I, so when I think about the future, I don't know if I dream of a future where that's all gone, all the evil is gone, or if I can imagine a world where I, I work towards a world where people can live, be in full dignity and really don't feel like they have to sacrifice parts of themselves for their survival, both like actually and, and spiritually and metaphysically. So that's, I strive towards that. I strive in my daughter that she understands what it means to hold people's dignity and treat people, even if you don't like them, because, you know, I don't like everybody. But even when I don't like you, I want to hold your dignity. And I think the time we're in on both sides of the political spectrum found lack of that ability to allow people their dignity. Even, I'm not saying I'm not arguing with you about my right to exist or my humanity, but it does mean nothing to destroy you in that process. And what it does is it shows how much of, how much we share in common, if that's what we're trying to do, because and I'm no different. And so I think there's something in our one-on-one -on -one interactions that has to be, we have to figure out how to push forward in our institutions. And I think that's where we're missing the gap. I think people can be nice to each other and kind to each other. And then we haven't figured out yet how to create our social and public institutions that can do the same. And I think until we do that, we'll be fighting this fight. So I think until we can build into the places where we spend most of our time, our workplaces, our schools, the streets, the parks, like if we can't build in just basic humanity, and into those institutions, we're going to end up constantly in the place where we're at, where we're fighting these little, I don't care if you're racist. I don't particularly care about your particular, anybody's particular racism. Call me all the name. I don't care. 
What I care about is are there, that you're not infringing on my right to have some dignity. That's what I care about. And you can not like the color of my skin all day. I don't care. I want my dignity though. And that's what I will insist upon. And I think that's where we get lost is that we get caught up in. So even sometimes I say to, I've been in places where I'm like, you know, I've been in enough movement spaces to know that we're just as cruel to each other. And so I'm always like, I don't know if I trust you to lead the world that I want to go into. I think we, I think there's something that makes me unsettled about the way, the way we've taken up interaction even when I agree with everything you're saying there's something just harmful in our rhetoric right now and so I don't try to reconcile it I it makes me unsettled I don't know we, I don't know if I trust our side to get us to freedom either our side right in air quotes I don't know I think the world that I see for it I think it's a world that's going to need movements and I think our movements have to continue to strive to be better than the world we're in and the degree to which we succeed and fail at that is going to be the nature of the world that we create when the revolution comes so I don't know I don't know if I I have an endpoint in mind but I know Mm. that my daughter will know how to create community because whatever the world looks like she's gonna need that and she's gonna know how to be of service because wherever she goes she's gonna need that and she's gonna know how to treat people with dignity and she's gonna know how to fight for and insist upon her own that's all I got I I can't I don't have a I don't have a big picture beyond that a utopia but yeah that's enough (laughs) and that's okay (laughs) although it would be nice to see a log frame for that if we could get a log frame, let me tell you something. At least keep us occupied for a couple months. Yeah, that's, right. that's right. Trying to unpack yeah. it. Keep, keep ourselves busy. We're coming up to the end of our time, but we do like to ask the question, if you had a magic wand, what are one or two changes to the academy, broadly defined, mm-hmm. that you might like to see? One of my favorite words when I was in grad school, I love this word still. I work it into all conversations if I can manage it. It's epistemological. The how we know what we know. I love that. That is my favorite. You and me both. And I try to throw it in where I can. And why I like it so much is that I I love thinking about the how we know what we know. And I would love to see one of the things that the gift that Novo was to me in the leadership there at that at the time that I was there. It was okay for me to trust my instincts, my intuition. And that intuition was informed by lots of experience. So it wasn't like I just came out the ground and said, this is what it is. Like I had a whole wealth of experience that I brought into that inform that intuition, that gut. And I'm not saying that the academy has to be more open to people's gut intuitions, but I do think there is a way of knowing what we know that fall, much of the ways that we know fall outside of the academy. And I think the academy does not do well with multiple ways of knowing what we know. And not only does it not do well with it, it diminishes it and discards it and dismisses it, which is to the detriment of the academy. And I think if there were one more options for people, I love the idea of the ivory tower in a space for thinkers and people just thinking. Research cannot be the only way you engage in a community. And it's not the only way most people engage in community, but it's the only way that they are able to bring back into the academy. And so there has to be other ways for people to bring in the wisdom so that this place, how much time I spent in my doctoral process trying to figure out how to separate from myself from people that I cared about in order to say that I know what I know about them. Like I can't be in relationship with them because then I'm suddenly biased. And in fact, I believe that I have a clear eye view because I know this space, but we devalue so much that positionality, even in the spaces where we say they're qualitative and we have different methods and we're using more grounded theories and things like that. Even those spaces require a certain distance and abstraction in order to know. And that can't be the only way of knowing. I just don't believe that. It's not the way most of us move in the world. And so I, that is what I would change. More, more deeper, more embodied understanding of what epistemology is. That's what I would hope for. Awesome. 
Wow. If anybody wants to get me an endowed chair so that I can <laughs> exist across the multiple worlds I've existed in, I'm down for that. I do that. I do that. What a beautiful thing to just be able to say, like my dream in life is just to do what I want to do. And I think it'll be in service of all of us because yeah. I think when everyone and whenever someone is living their fullest riches, doing what they do well, it will be in service of something. I just want more space. I want more Black women out here just doing it to have endowed chairs yeah. and to be able to teach and learn and be a lot of epistemological different ways. And if I had all the money in the world, that's what I would do. I would just say, you person over there who has this lived experience that is so rich and beautiful, here's some money. Go do something. Go be free and figure out what you're going to contribute back to us. And that's going to be great. It's going to be beautiful. That is my dream. So I want that. And I, I want it for myself. And I want everybody to have the space all the brilliant people I come across in my work, both the young people and the adults. I just want them to have space and like money to go be free and think and do stuff and then bring it back and we'll mm -hmm. learn from it. When you start that department with your endowed chair, please consider me as a faculty. Me Absolutely. too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. There's so much thinking. My mind is exploding right now, but then in a good way. <laughs> Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your deep wisdom around these issues, but also sharing from your heart. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to have heart-centered conversations. And not only have we met that, but I think we've exceeded that by a long shot. I know I'll be thinking about this conversation for a long time. And it's just exciting to know that I've known you now for quite a few years now and to have been able to have this kind of experience sharing about your background and your perspectives is new. And I've just really appreciated it. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. And I told my partner, I was like, I'm just going to get on and talk. He's like, about what? I said, I'm not sure. But I hope it's useful to somebody. So it was very useful and honest and from the heart and also just for me as another Black woman who navigated the academy in different ways than most of my cohort or classmates or others, and who also is doing passion-driven work. It's just very inspiring to hear and to meet another person who looks like me, who's doing similar things so that I don't feel alone. Yeah. And so it was really affirming to hear mm -hmm. your story and some of the things that you say just ringing true with a lot of the places where I am in, in my work and passion projects. I do appreciate that. And this is how we're starting off to get to know each other. I'm excited. I yes. to see what happens after. I love it. I love it. I'm like, there's, and there's, there are lots of us though. I've, I've been fortunate enough to meet a few whenever you're needing that. It's the, just the, there's a lot of time you're trying to figure out how to live free and, and I, and mm -hmm. in a system that's not designed for us to live at all. Some days it feels like I hold on to that. And if you ever want to meet some of them, I'm down to, you know, introduce you. <laughs> Great. Now we have an opportunity to reflect on our conversation with Ramatu. It's coming up for you, Maya. So many words that jump out at me that I was scribbling down during the discussion, but abstraction of the problem of abstraction, being ignored to death, standing in the gaps where systems fail, and community. All of these ideas resonated with experiences that I've had either in academia or just in as a professional woman trying to do work or make the case 
for people who are invisible or not seen or not really considered for programs or jobs or any kind of ways who are often excluded. And so just to hear the different ways those things have shown up in her life and her experience are reaffirming in some way, again, that it's not a singular thing, but in the same way, the fact that they continue to show up in different places and spaces is also disappointing because it just shows how big these issues are and they're not just singular for individuals. Yeah, that was an amazing conversation. (laughs) I just appreciate how she openly shared her perspective and her life and her story. And the question that I had or that I was excited about before starting exploring her purpose and how those different activities and her life trajectory are knitted together. It was amazing. I'm looking forward to listening to it over and over again. And I I know that others will find a lot of energy from that as well, because it's almost just second nature that these different activities assemble around this clear purpose about Mm -hmm. how one leads a life and how one shows up for others and how one serves others and holding that tension, yes, between beauty and ugliness and standing in that gap is what all of us are being called to do in this moment, for sure. I appreciated too how she languaged some of her experience in graduate school. And I think it resonates in a more universal sense with some of the characteristics of the academy. Hostility. And just this Mm -hmm. sort of underlying sense of hostility. It's a very hostile environment and Mm -hmm. that aligns with my experience. But then the similarity between the academy and philanthropy was just fascinating to hear her talk about because so many of those things are just there. And it's just, huh, okay. There's a rabbit hole to go down. (laughs) Yeah. Going back to this idea of the tension and just being able to hold the complexity and fullness of human beings, we can be and who we are in all of our beauty and evil as well. And it's rare to find someone who, speaking to your point about language, who can articulate that specific action of holding those two very disparate positions in such a way that still allows her to be able to move forward and still do work, even acknowledging and knowing that this is the world that we live in, where people can be great, they can be supportive and care for others in community, but they can also be horrendous and evil. And a lot of times we like to, we hear it as if the world is one or the other and not both. And so how do you navigate, hearing her talk about how she navigates from a place of understanding that the world and people can be and are both and still wakes up every day and wants to support and do the work around women and girls and people who are often invisible. That's just, to me, just amazing and also important I think for people to hear because most of the time people are like, oh, we can do this or this, but not both. And to see and hear somebody who is doing both successfully and impactfully is just, I think, story or a narrative that we don't hear that I think would behoove us to hear and see more of. It really resonated with me when she was sharing about one of the things bringing her to graduate school was wanting to be involved in education in some way and really enjoying being part of a learning space, but then finding that she didn't 
quite fit in with what the conventional either grad school or academic community was offering. And part of it was where she lived, but part of it was just where she was at with life and that she was working and doing other things and recognized that perhaps the academy was not the only thing that she was excited about. And that was very much my case. I was working and doing a lot of stuff related to sustainable agriculture at the time. And I needed that. I loved that. I loved doing different things, but I, I loved being able to go and be on the farm and, and work with the, the immigrants that we were working with because it, it just totally took me out of that academic realm. And yet at the same time, feeling not fully a part of what was happening in school and then always being on the fringe. There was a point where she was talking a bit about how, it, I don't know if it took her a little bit of time to figure out that she it wasn't quite her community. And I had made note that in our graduate program, it was how you wanted to try and be in the light of the sun of your faculty chair because it would pass you over at some point and then you would be out of the light, uh, the warmth. And uh, I remember hearing that, but also feeling that where part of the feeling was that you needed to be around or you needed to, whether it was just at in the department or at the conferences or wherever. And what it took for her to find her people, it would have been interesting if we had more time to, to talk a little bit more about what went into that and eventually find that. And as I said, I don't think I've realized previously how important it is to hear similar experiences of your own, even though they've happened in the past, even though I feel like for the most part I've worked through, I won't say just the experiences that I had in grad school, but to hear similar feelings of not being able to find community or having to create your own community or navigating as a working student, not on campus or through an RA ship, but as having an outside mm -hmm. job that pays your bills, but may not connect directly to your studies. And the lack of space or understanding or acknowledgement of that in some of these programs of how people can afford grad school. Because I went to NYU. Yes, going home and having to lay down because <laughs> you're realizing there's no money in my master's program. There was no funding. And those kinds of struggles that are often so insular and so private and so commonly not shared, to hear someone else having gone through that overcome it. And I've, I just don't think I've ever really experienced or thought about what hearing that from someone else would mean to me. And I don't think, I still don't think I can articulate exactly what it means, but there's something about hearing something that you feel like echoes your own journey. Of course, with nuance and difference, but there's something there that really resonated with me today that I just... We'll have to spend some time trying to make sense. <laughs> Definitely a conversation where we hit the mark of why this <laughs> podcast exists. And yeah. I just want to invite her for a summer picnic coffee or something. <laughs> just like a stroll through Central Park in yeah. New York, just walking around and talking. would love to invite her to do that one day soon. Yeah, I'm looking forward to joining her faculty someday. So Yes, the endowed chair. <laughs>